Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. Before the days of Amazon and the internet where you could just order anything, you had catalogs. And football teams, well, they had to order their items through catalogs too. Well, Goldsmith was one of the biggest ones out there. And Timothy P. Brown of FootballArchaeology.com joins us today to tell us about the Goldsmith catalog and some of their endorsers. Tim's coming up in just a moment to tell us all about it. This is the Pigskin Daily History Dispatch, a podcast that covers the anniversaries of American football events throughout history on a day-to-day basis. Your host, Darren Hayes, is podcasting from America's North Shore to bring you the memories of the gridiron one day at a time. So as we come out of the tunnel of the Sports History Network, let's take the field and go no huddle through the portal of positive gridiron history with pigskindispatch.com. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello, my football friends. This is Darren Hayes of pigskindispatch.com. Welcome once again to the Pigpen, your portal for positive football history. And welcome to another Tuesday as we get to visit with our friend Timothy P. Brown of footballarchaeology.com. Tim, welcome back to the Pigpen. Thank you, sir. Look forward to chatting again as always, and hopefully we'll something interesting for people to listen to yeah you tim you have some amazing things happening you know each and every day and every once in a while you get some of these zingers that like uh just like i, I can't call it an earworm i don't know what it is it just uh it, it stays with me all day when I, I read it i read it in the evening and it stays <laughs> with me through the night i'm laying in bed thinking about it wake up next morning and one of those is uh you, you keep going into the the goldsmith catalog and you had one that uh you know, that you had back in September out as a tidbit uh, that talks about some staff that uh, that Goldsmith Catalog uh, got some information from. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that tonight. Yeah. So, you know, so I, I guess, you know, first off, just, you know, by way of background, I have something on the order, you know, 30 or 40 vintage sporting goods catalogs, you know, so I collect them over time or I've collected them over time. It's just a way to to be able to look up, okay, well, what, you know, some of it's just images, you know, for my, mm. for the tidbits, but it's also just, you know, you can look at them and understand, okay, this is what this equipment was made of at the time and how things changed and things that they created that disappeared because they didn't really work very well or they were uncomfortable, you know, whatever it may have been. Anyway, so I collect these catalogs and most of them, I'm just, you know, I'm buying them online. And so I don't, uh, typically I'm only seeing like cover photographs, a couple of inside pages, but I don't know what, you know, it's not like, you know, it can be a 90 page catalog, but I'm only seeing images of a couple of them. So, anyways, this was one of those, you know, I, I bought this Goldsmith was a big brand at the time and um, I didn't have a lot of Goldsmith catalogs. So I, you know, picked this one up and, you know, then once it was delivered, it was like right away. Like, okay. This is really cool because in addition to just normal pages showing the equipment and the pricing and everything for shoulder pads and helmets and whatever, each of the different 
major types of equipment, they had a lead-in cartoon page that kind of told the, the history of that type of equipment, the history of football shoes, the history of helmets. And so it was, number one, it's just kind of fun imagery. They're interesting cartoons. Um, so it was just a way to, you know, kind of go through those. And then, you know, what I've done, you know, it's a series of, there will be an eighth week now that, um, but, you know, so it's just a way to publish, um, to do these car show these cartoons and then just go through the equipment of the time. And so this is mid thirties, you know, so what was equipment like, you know, then, and so this, the first of those cartoons was about what they called their consulting staff. And so that was, um, you know, essentially a consulting staff was like the coaches and, and one trainer who were their, like their advisory staff. They were the guys who, they would go to to talk through, you know, what kinds of changes do we need for the equipment? Or if they had a research and development group, they would show them, they'd show these coaches, hey, here's what we've come up with. What do you think about this? Can you have you guys wear this stuff in spring practice or in regular practice and um, see how it performs? You know, so they were, you know, obviously these coaches were paid. Um and in many cases, they, um, the, you know, the manufacturers would then, you know, just like your old baseball gloves, where it was like the Mickey Mantle glove or whatever, you know, there were, there were pants and helmets and footballs that had the Newt Rockney name on it or whom have Pop Warner and John Heisman and, you know, so, <clears throat> um, but, well, Tim was, was Goldsmith, were they sort of in the Midwest? Is that? what I'm getting a sense of or, or what part of the country were they centered out of? You know, a lot of the coaches that are on this advisory staff are Midwest guys. So I kind of get a sense of that, but you know, there was a lot of Midwest like DNM was out East. They were like a Massachusetts firm, but Spalding was Midwest reach. I believe was Midwest. Um, uh, there were a couple down in St. Louis. So, you know, I don't have that catalog in front of me, uh, but I could, um, you know, I could look look it up and I can, you know, let you know, you know, kind of where they were based. Yeah, that's that's what I was. Is there a reason about. you ask? Or well, I I know that Spalding was out of Chicago, and it just seemed, you know, and it, and it seems like like you said, this, a lot of these coaches are Midwestern teams, uh, you know, Western Conference, Big Ten yeah. teams, and I'm just wondering, you know if there was a reason why maybe, you know, distribution or something that they were in the center of the country, because you really, you think about that area, you know, football starting in the East and moving West, you'd almost think the equipment would be a more of an Eastern based, you know, industry shipping out, but I just curious. Yeah, I think, well, my understanding is a lot of it was the stockyards in Chicago, you know, so there was uh, access to leather. Okay. You know, so I that mean, makes so, sense. so much of the early equipment, yeah, so much of the early equipment was leather that, uh, you know, it made more sense to be where you could pick and choose and get high grade leathers and, you know, yada, yada, yada. So, yeah, I mean, it's funny. It's one of those things you wouldn't even think is, you know, there's no reason anymore, you know, <laughs> right. to be near, near a source of leather. Other, obviously, you know, baseball gloves are a different story. But otherwise, you know, most football equipment. You know, there's no leather involved anymore. Um, and then the ball, you know, obviously the balls, 
we're loving. So, anyways, yeah, that's uh, I, that. That's why a lot of it, you know, started in the Midwest. That makes perfect sense. Okay, thanks. Um, yeah. So, so then you know, like these coaches were, um, you know, the folks that they had um, on at that point. So in 1935, they had Hunk Anderson, who was at North Carolina State, but had just finished a tour at Notre Dame. So Midwest, then he had played at Notre Dame. Uh, Noble Kaiser was at Purdue. Fritz Chrysler was at Princeton, but he had been at he had played at U Chicago, and then he had coached Minnesota before going to Princeton, um, and then obviously he ended up at Michigan. Um, Doc Spears had been all over. The, well. He kind of he was a journeyman. He was actually a doctor, but and a football coach. But he was at Wisconsin at the time, and I can't remember if he had just gone there. I think he got fired after that, and then went out to Oregon, or it could have been the other way around. Um, and then this guy Frank Major Wandel from Yale, um, who was he was one of those interesting guys at the time. There were a lot of. It's kind of like you know there are these strength and conditioning coaches now who are you know kind of they have their own brand they're they're nationally known nationally recognized guys and you know back then the trainer there were trainers like that too and he was one of them so he'd been um longtime trainer at west point and he ends up down at uh i think it was lsu for a couple of years and then he then he ends up at yale which is where he was at at the time. Um, so, so actually, the mix isn't that much Midwestern. <laughs> um, but it, it's it's interesting because because the image uh, that you have, and folks, if you you got to enjoy these images that Tim's talking about, we have a link in the show notes. You can go to Tim's page and see some of these uh, that he's talking about these cartoons. But Major Wandel, you know, everybody else is sort of wearing like white knickers, and he's got like I don't know if they're plaid knickers or. But that's what jumps out of you on the page to me is these knickers, you know, and, and it's he's in the lower uh, right hand corner of the the page I'm looking at. But the, <laughs> he must have been a character to to have uh, some like looks more like he's yeah. golfing maybe. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, he's one of those guys who just like came out of some gym in New Jersey and ended up eventually hooking in with. Uh, he did some training, you know, during World War One, and then ends up at at the West point for quite a while. Um, but yeah, I mean, back then tr trainers were function both. They handled both the kind of sports medicine side, you know, they weren't physicians, but you know, when we think about athletic training, we're thinking about, you know, hot baths and cold baths and, you know, taping guys and, you know, rigging up some kind of contraption, and, you know, so it doesn't hurt uh, as well as strength and condition. So they, they were both at the time and mostly conditioning because they didn't do as much strength work. But um, yeah, a lot of these guys were, you know, they're big on the whole getting guys to roll on the ground to tough them, toughen them up. <laughs> you know, <laughs> things that we now think are pretty absurd, but you know, that was kind of core beliefs at the time. Yeah. I can remember back when I was playing, when I was, like I think the first year I played me, I was in fifth grade or something. I remember our coach, he was old school. He was an older guy. And, uh, 
Yeah, you, you'd have to part of your calisthenics. You'd run in place and then drop and make sure your stomach hits first because that's going to toughen your gut yep. up. You know, as everybody gets the wind knocked out of when you hit the ground and you're gasping for air trying to get back up. But that's, yeah. I, I picture that kind of training, huh? Yeah, that was the deal. Um, <laughs> but one one of the other things I thought, thought was kind of cool. Um, I can't remember, you know, which eater uh, left this as a comment or a question, but. Um, you know, I was a Purdue fan and, you know, there were a lot of schools back in the thirties that wore, um, winged helmets, right? I mean, we, we now associated with just a select few schools and, but back then it was very common. Nevertheless, you know, this guy made the comment that, you know, back in the thirties and mid thirties in particular, Purdue wore winged helmets you know so wing in front straps you know going the back kind of you know the michigan delaware princeton style now but uh so it's like so that's where you know because noble actually was one of these advisory coaches <laughs> and so i would bet if you, if you look at uh images of the purdue team from that era they're probably wearing some some form of goldsmith helmet right so yeah. as opposed to some competitive brand so anyways, but for him, it was, it was kind of a neat insight because it's like, okay, so that's why they wore those, those stupid ones. <laughs> <laughs> now with, with these coaches sort of being on the, the board of directors or uh, the, the consultants of the, now did they, uh, is that, you know, did their teams buy all their equipment from Goldsmith then? Is that, was that part of the deal of, they got, they got... you know, I, I've never really seen anything that goes into the details of those kinds of contracts. I mean, I've read a few things about um, uh, Newt Rock because he was like, I mean, if you think that there's somebody that that uh, is on every commercial nowadays, like, you know, Saban, you know, down in Alabama is on a, a fair amount of stuff. But Rockney was, I mean, he was pitching, obviously, all kinds of athletic equipment. I think he pitched Ramblers or Studebakers, you know, one of one of those brands. He did coffee. He did all you know stuff for Kellogg, a lot of stuff for Kellogg, and they had coffee at the time. And just all, Barbasol. He was big on Barbasol screen, you know. So he so, so he Patrick was Mahomes and Travis Kelsey eat your hearts out. Newt Rockney yeah. was the first. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Major sponsor ambassador. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so well, you asked the. Uh, you know, did the coach or did the teams buy that brand of equipment? And so I, I've never really, you know, I've never seen anything definitive in that regard. And I have this kind of a storyline I've never checked into. You know, I have read a number of things with, um, you know, Newt Rockney and his, you know, he he promoted a lot of different kinds of consumer goods, but then also a lot of uh, football equipment. So, I mean, I have to believe that they, at minimum, they benefited from the, you know, they got discounts on the equipment and in some cases free stuff in order to test it. You know, it had to be that kind of thing going on. But, you know, the research I've, I've done in the past about, you know, like when, when logos first came, you know, mm-hmm. when logos became prominent in the 60s, really Adidas, you know, among track athletes where that whole thing got going and they were, you know, giving away equipment, paying athletes to wear their branded goods um so that's really where that started um but 
there were probably, you know, less, um, you know, maybe a little bit less formal, you know, kinds of, you know, deals in the past, right? You know. Yeah, I'm, so I'm, just, I, you know, I'm just picturing like a high school coach or, or <laughs> athletic director saying, hey, you know, Fritz Chrysler's uh, endorsing this product, Goldsmith. We better buy our equipment there because, you know, we're we're Fritz Chrysler fans or, you know, you know, Hunk Anderson fans, whatever, you know, they, they see their yeah, yeah, hero yeah. endorsing it. And, uh, you know, that's probably a lot of the attraction from, for having them on the covers. Yeah. And, you know, I'm sure they got, they, they got paid something just like, you know, the baseball gloves and, you know, that, you know, those, those athletes got things, you know, somehow they got money, uh, when their gloves sold. Right. So, right. um, but you know the d- details of it, I don't understand or you know really know anything about. I wonder. Uh, I picture you know because you have some great images of the helmets. I wonder maybe you know we can look back at some old photographs. Uh, maybe I'll I'll do that in some spare time here and look and see if you can tell a gold uh, Smith helmet from you know a Spalding or some of the other manufacturers, and maybe you can tell that way and say, hey, you know, Purdue was wearing a goldsmith in 37 or 30 yeah. and uh probably what, yeah well even in, in that article i did do um there <clears throat> i couldn't find a good sharp image of the princeton team from that era to see well what helmet did they wear well in fact what i the only thing i really found was a um it was a, a painting or an illustration from a year you know princeton yearbook and the helmets of Princeton players are wearing not what we think of as a classic winged helmet. It was, there's a style of helmet. It kind of looks like a, now I'm blanking on the, the, the term, but it's kind of like a three leaf clover sort of design. It's, you know, um, so anyway, but, you know, and Goldsmith offered that helmet and, or that style of helmet, but I think others did as well. So sometimes it's hard to, to tell exactly what brand because you know people you know they they wore you know they had similar designs you know different brands did so uh yeah go go ahead go ahead and continue yeah well I, w- I was mostly just gonna say i'm not sure you know i'm just i put together some notes uh in advance and so i don't know that i had had anything else i mean other than just one of the things that's pretty remarkable as in all these catalogs or in, in all the different product categories is it like on helmets you could go from like say a 15 dollar helmet down to like one that costs two dollars and 35 cents <laughs> you know <laughs> so the you know they they end up having these high-end helmets and then then there's kind of moderately priced ones and then there's pretty inexpensive helmets and so you just gotta you know it's like now every helmet has to at least meet a certain base you know, performance level, you know, based on Noxie. But, you know, back then it was like, well, no, we, this is a great helmet. We think it's good, <laughs> you know, but there's no, <laughs> no measurement standards or anything. It's just like, you're taking somebody's word for it. But yeah, that's it's a, a good helmet. Yeah, that leads into one of the questions I was going to ask you, because the, the ad for the helmets that you have on this tidbit, you know, it has uh, three examples of helmets that they were promoting, and all of them say leather-lined. Now, what would be the alternative to leather-lined in that era? Would it be like, uh, you know, cloth or something, or, you know? 
Yeah, I think for, for the most part, uh, the internals were either leather or felt. And so you'll, you'll also see things. And so, and you pretty much have to go look at the, the less expensive ones to, to get a, to get a handle on, you know, the alternatives. So like yeah. the pants as, as an example, um, moleskin was kind of the high end, um, not as, as much in the thirties anymore, but moleskin was the higher end material for pants. And, um, then canvas was low end material. And then there might be st- different kinds of twills and maybe duck and whatever. I don't even know what some of those things really are that they're one form of cotton, uh, you know, material or another, but then by the thirties, you were getting into, um, <clears throat> you know, silk and, you know, they, a lot of times you'd say like airplane cloth, which is ac- actually a form of silk. Um, so silk, and then, uh, uh, I'm blanking on the, the kind of the really shiny <laughs> material <laughs> that, uh, satin. You know, you'd see that satin. Yeah. It's uh, you'd see satin on the front of, you know, certain, certain teams pants. So, yeah, I mean, some of it was um, once they once they got into some of the the not so like silk. One of the real values of it, it was lighter, much more water repellent, you know, so it didn't soak up sweat and, and you know water in a, in a rainy situation. So the players were you know felt lighter, but it also uh, silk is much more easy to uh, it dyes much more easily, and you can do a much broader range of colors, whereas the duck and canvas pretty much were always earth tones, you know, one earth tone or another. So everybody wore kind of the same looking pants until New York University shows up wearing purple, you know, pants. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, it's, you think about it, that was a big deal. All of a sudden somebody, hey, they're wearing purple pants. But, yeah, I was just yeah. trying to go when you were saying, you know, that from the $15 helmet down to the $2 and 35 cent helmet, I'm, I'm picturing, you know, Hey, uh, you know, varsity players, you get the $15 helmet with the leather lined and freshmen, you're going to get the burlap lined, uh, helmets, you know, or something yeah. uncomfortable. Oh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> but, yeah. Well, I'm sure that, sure. That was, sure. You know, obviously the, the freshmen who were wearing the stuff that was the latest and greatest 10 years ago. Right. So, yeah. and the thing on some of that is that, um, I, I was looking at, so I'm, I'm still, I'm writing, you know, writing one of these and it, there's, uh, there's kind of like a flap in the back between kind of the ear hole area and the back. And it's, it's got some kind of flexible extension, some kind of elastic band there. And so you know, there were, that's part of the sizing. <laughs> you know, if you look at the catalog, sometimes not a lot said about the sizing of helmets. And so. <laughs> You know, I always had a big old water bucket head, so I needed a big helmet. <laughs> I've got a younger brother's, you know, got a pinhead. And, uh, you know, so, but presumably we, you know, would have been issued the same helmet. You know, so. <laughs> oh, geez. You know, I'm, uh, I'm sure they had some kind of size variations, but, you know, they don't talk about much in the catalog. Size variations, you had to stuff some straw or a rag in the back or something to <laughs> make it stay on yeah. your head. <laughs> Uh, Tim, that's a I mean, fascinating stuff, and you've you've got a lot of these uh, goldsmiths that you've been coming out. Like you said, you had an eight part series on it, yeah, but uh, you know you have a lot of other interesting stuff coming out. You know, seven days a week, and maybe you could share with folks how they could uh, get in touch with you uh, to learn about your tidbits and uh, and read them each and every day. 
Yeah. So, uh, you know, so my preferring would be that it, it just visit the site and you uh, subscribe. And, uh, you know, that way, basically, if you're subscribed, you can, you'll get the, you'll get the to bit by email every night. Uh, Cause I assume it's seven o'clock Eastern. Um, if you, if you're a Substack um, reader, you can also just get it and follow me on Substack, and then you know you'll you'll be able to get them every night. Um, some people don't want the email, but they're you know they like getting it on Substack. I also, at least for now, I'm still tweeting it every night, <laughs> and then I also post it on on the application threads. So me on one of those, it's always football archaeology. You know, if you enter that, you'll find me, and uh, then it's kind of like happy reading. All right. Well, Timothy Brown, uh, thank you. Uh, once again, footballarchaeology.com is the place to go. And we appreciate you, sir. And we will talk to you again next Tuesday. Very good. Thank you. Next Aaron. Peeking up at the clock, the time's running down. We're going to go into victory formation, take a knee, and let this baby run out. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you back tomorrow for the next podcast. We invite you to check out our website, pigskindispatch.com, not only to see the daily football history, but to experience positive football with our many articles on the good people of the game, as well as our own football comic strip, Cleet Marks Comics. Pigskindispatch.com is also on social media outlets, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and don't forget the Pigskin Dispatch YouTube channel to get all of your positive football news and history. Special thanks to the talents of Mike and Gene Monroe, as well as Jason Neff for letting us use their music during our podcast. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey there, football fans. This is Ross, the host of the Pigskin Tales podcast. I just need a few moments of your time to talk about the host of the Pigskin Dispatch podcast, Darren Hayes. He's expanded the pig pen to search out information on the history of all team sports. It's a quest to find out about the competitors, teams, and places chronicled throughout athletic history through the uniforms and gear the participants used and wore. And he is taking you, the listener, with him on this educational journey to preserve sports history on the Sports Jersey Dispatch, found here on the Sports History Network. His newest podcast, called Jersey Dispatch, is all based on the jerseys that all the greats used to wear. You can find Darren Hayes and the Pigskin Dispatch podcast, as well as Jersey Dispatch, on your favorite podcast provider multiple times each week. So remember that, Darren Hayes, the host of the Pigskin Dispatch and Jersey Dispatch podcasts. It's found right here on the Sports History Network.